So preachers rule number one. Don't turn into a sermon to others what God is trying to say to you. Okay, I'm starting with a confession this morning and breaking preacher's rule number one. I was deeply challenged when I heard Quentin preaching last week about uh, our lives turning towards contentment through the practice of gratitude. Because as my lovely wife will bear testimony, I have not been practicing gratitude the last week or two or three. I've been a bit of a grumbling, mumbling, whatever word comes to mind now. I think I've been blaming the end of year, blaming tiredness, blaming I don't know what, but just kind of haven't been feeling great, feeling tired, and you're just like, uh, and uh, I've had to rebuke some of you, sorry if you didn't deserve the rebuke, but it's just, it's been that season, so if you've got sin in your life and you want to be rebuked, come to me now, because this is kind of that time of year where I'm just, uh, and here Quinton comes preaching about contentment. So Thursday morning at half past five on a Thursday morning, I was down at the beachfront. Francois Pina, he hosts this, uh, this men's meeting on a Thursday morning down at the beachfront, just a bunch of guys praying together. And it was one of those beautiful mornings down at the beachfront. The surfers were out and a couple of the runners were out. And it was one of those stunning, perfect, beautiful mornings. The sun had just risen. And I'm looking around thinking, yo, the world is a beautiful place. What are you grumbling about? And then Francois comes and he leads us in a devotion and he opens up Psalm 131, which is all about contentment. And as he's reading about contentment, I'm like, Ugh. and so um, basically I'm bringing you my confessional this morning. And I hope that as I confess my sins to you, mutually we might be encouraged. But here's the, here's the challenge. I do want to pick up on what Quentin was saying because I thought he did an amazing job last week. So using gratitude to pivot our lives, to turn out of a, a complaining, arguing and into rejoicing and thankfulness. But I want to start by reminding us why contentment in Christ is not just a nice add-on. It's a nice to have. No, it's critical. And here's why. Because discontentment is the doorway of temptation. Let me say that again. Discontentment is the doorway for temptation. Every temptation that plagues you, that comes knocking on your door, is knocking on a door that's already partially open. And that door's open, partially open, because of a discontentment in your life. You see, when the devil came to Eve, he tried to get her discontent. God is trying to be mean. He's jealous, doesn't want you to be like him. And so that's why he's keeping you from the best fruit of all. And suddenly discontentment grows. If we are discontent, the devil has a doorway to knock on. That's why contentment in Christ is actually a powerful weapon that we should grow into. And I say grow into it because it is a sign of maturity that we would grow to completeness. The Bible speaks that we would be mature and complete. Perfect. When the Bible speaks about perfect, it's not, there's not a hair out of place. Perfect means whole, that we would be whole and complete and content in Christ. On the positive side... Contentment is critical, not just because it closes the door on temptation, but as someone once said so beautifully, that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Isn't that beautiful? God is most glorified in your life when you are most content, satisfied in Him. And that's why this issue of contentment in Christ is such a powerful one. Before I read Psalm 131, where we're going to be based this morning, I want to remind you about David. David had a bad day. He probably had a few bad days, but probably his worst day 
was when David and his men were coming back from a battle and when they arrived home, you arrived to the worst possible site, fire engines parked in front of your house. Well, they weren't fire engines, but he saw smoke. And then there was smoke, and as he got closer and closer, the sense of dread must have grown inside of him till he stands before the village, the town they live, Ziglag, and it's burnt to the ground. And can you imagine men coming home from battle to find your homes burnt to the ground? Not just yours, whole town. Of course, I mean, you know in a moment like that that it's not stuff that's really important. It's your family that's really important, and they're gone. Your wife, your children, gone. Possessions, gone. Everything, gone. And in that moment of absolute desperation, the one thing that David at least had was his band of men. They'd been through battle together. They were brothers together. And his men started turning on him saying, David, it's your fault. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be out there. We would have been home protecting our wives and children. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And now you, David, lost your house, lost all your possessions, lost your family, lost everything, even your men, your friends turned against you. They want to stone you. And in that moment, we read these incredible words in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6, but David found strength in the Lord his God. You see, the important thing about David and his relationship with God is he knew how to not just be a king to others, knew how to not just minister to others, but he could minister to himself. This is maturity in Christ. When we learn to minister to ourselves, you will go through bad days. The Bible's very clear. We go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you heard a gospel that promised you come to Christ and your problems disappeared, you were lied to and I ask you to forgive whoever preached that gospel to you. It's not the Bible. The Bible, in fact, says the opposite. There will be difficult times. There will be hardships. There will be struggles. And part of our maturity in Christ means learning to minister to ourselves so that in the bad days, you don't become this pitiless kind of lying on the floor in a fetal position saying, take me home, God, where are you? But we learn to strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God. On days when everything goes right, we don't think we're heroes. We realize, actually, thank you, Lord, it's going right today. We learn to live on an even keel of contentment because we can minister to ourselves in the good and the bad times. So this David, who knew how to minister to himself, who knew how to lead himself even better than he led others, penned these amazing words in Psalm 131. He says, my heart is not proud, Lord. Now please read these carefully because I'm going to ask you to try and memorize them. That's right, learn a whole psalm as your homework today. So some of you might need to write it out, pin it to the fridge, it's not that hard. And uh, this would be a great psalm to bury in our hearts. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. There it is. I would encourage you to try and memorize it. Memorizing scripture is a a beautiful and biblical thing to do. In fact, uh, the early uh, Jewish people, they would have to memorize the whole Torah. When I was in Pakistan recently, the guy who translated for us, a lovely man, Kashif, beautiful guy, he said, completely humbly, he said, Brenda, I actually think I know all 150 Psalms. Because they sing them. Instead of singing Bethel or Elevation, they'd sing the Psalms. And so he's memorized all 150 Psalms. What a beautiful, his heart is full of the Word of God. 
So, three big ideas and three acts of repentance that I'm talking to myself and you listening in on today. Big idea number one. I'm not going to start in verse number one. I'm going to finish with verse number one. I'm going to start in verse number two and three. Verse two said, but I've calmed and quieted myself. Big idea number one. David took responsibility for the state of his inner world. You know, there's many things, most things God does for us. He sent Jesus for us. Jesus obeyed the law for us. Jesus died for us on the cross. Jesus paid for your sin. Jesus was resurrected for your eternal life. Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit to empower us. Jesus has done the heavy lifting. God has done it for us. But there are some things that God will not do for us. God has given us the opportunity to partner with him. Some things like repentance, God does not do for you. The Bible says to you, repent. That God's not going to repent for you. He can give you a heart of repentance, but you need to repent. God cannot have faith for you. He can give you the gift of faith, but you've got to choose to use that gift and trust God. Now, once again, right here, God has given us every reason to trust in him. But I love what it says. We have to take responsibility now for the state of our inner world. So I've been blaming end of year, lots of travel, I'm tired, I'm this, blame the world, blah, 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 fish paste. No, no, take responsibility for the state of your inner world. We're not a victim of our emotions. Our inner world should not be built on the foundation of our feelings. Feelings are fine, but feelings are fickle and feelings are not a good foundation for our lives and decisions. To follow Jesus means we repent from a life built on feelings to a life built on the foundation of the word of God. It reminds me of uh, what Paul said to, to the church in, in Colossae in the book of Colossians. I love that. It's a beautiful verse in uh, Colossians 3 verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule. I love that. Don't let the peace of God rest. Let it, like the dove, let your peace rest. No, let his peace rule in your heart. Because if his peace is not ruling in your heart, it's because you're allowing feelings to rule your heart. If, you, if it's not feelings that are ruling your heart, then it's the flesh, the evil, the selfish desires of the flesh that are ruling your heart. And into that, Paul says, no, 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 you get to choose. This is a governmental decision in your life. Choose to let his peace, the prince of peace, come and rule in our hearts. It's a command. Big idea number two, and this one blew me away. Let me read again part of verse two. David says, I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. One of the big things I learned a while ago is that your behavior, my behavior, will never change until our identity has changed. If you still see yourself as a smoker, guess what you're going to do for the rest of your life? You're going to smoke. That's what you do. That's who you are. And, and whoever you are, that's the behavior. And I'm not picking on smokers. All of us have got our sin. My point is this. Before the action changes, we've got to change our identity. We don't do righteous things and so now we are righteous. When we realize I have received the righteousness of God, I love to live, I learn to live a righteous life. I don't stop impure things and so now I'm pure. No, I realize I am pure in God and so now I live a pure life. So what about David? 
What about David, the man who took on Goliath? What about David, the man who leads the armies of Israel? What about David, who's surrounded by a team of 30? Well, actually, there were 37. They were called the 30, but there were 37 mighty men. Each of them had these coming of the CV of all the people they've slain. I mean, if I'm David, I'm thinking like, I'm Braveheart. I mean, when I picture myself, I'm picturing the blue paint on my face, and I'm like, like, no! David, how do you see yourself? Like a weaned child with its mother. It's like, hello. I mean, I'm picturing now, literally like baby in mom's arms at their breast, you know, like, that's, that's, Yana, that's me. Wow. That's David's identity. Like a weaned child with its mother is content. A weaned child is absolutely dependent on its mother. You take that child from its mother and leave it, and, and within a day or two, there's no more child. That's finished. For everything, that little baby is dependent on its mother. But with its mother, every need and desire of the baby is met. The mom is going to take care of everything, comfort, security, food, every, you are safe right here. So you ask David, how do you see yourself? I'm like a weaned child with its mother. That's radical. But then I thought, but that's, isn't that how Jesus saw himself? You see, Jesus said this in, in John 5 and verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. In John 5 verse 30, by myself, I can do nothing. Jesus had the same identity. He read, when he saw himself, he saw someone as absolutely, completely dependent on his father. Take me from my father, I'm useless. That was his identity. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus then says to you and I. In John chapter 15 and verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is your identity as well. You're just like a branch connected like a child at his mother's breast. That's you with your heavenly father, that dependent. But if you stay dependent, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. The point is that this has, is an issue of identity before it becomes an issue of behavior. My contentment is wrapped up in my revelation that I'm 100% completely dependent on my father, like a weaned child with its mother. Big idea number three then. Big idea number three is simply this. It said in verse number three, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. So now the king who shared his heart, the king who shared his sense of dependence, now we hear the king's voice. And you know, this is written as a decree from the king. Remember, the people reading this would be reading this, oh, this is David. This is not one of Asaph, one of the singer of songs. No, no, this is the king speaking. It's a psalm of David. And as the king, he now says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. You see, sometimes we think that some of the things in the Bible are like optional extras, should I, should now, when it's convenient. Contentment in Christ is not an optional extra. It's actually a command from the Lord. 
It's a decree of the king. Stop trusting in the world. Stop putting your hope in yourself, your finances. No, no. Put your hope in the Lord now and forever. But what happens when God gives a command? Two things. One, it means it's possible. Because you might be saying right now, the enemy might be smuggling with your cup and you're thinking, no, no, no. Not real. If you knew what I was facing, you'd understand why I could never be content in this situation. I could never be content as long as this happens. I could never be content as long as I don't have that. No, no. It's a command from God. That means two things. One, it means you can do it. God will never command us to do something he doesn't give us the grace to do. But remember that his grace follows faith. So I want to ask you today, do you have faith that you can be content without X, whatever your X might be, without that in your life, could you be content? As long as you're saying not a chance, then you're not going to be content. But when you agree with the word of God, actually I can put my hope in the Lord. I can be content even if I don't have X. Then you'll find grace from God to do it. Number one, it means you can. Number two, it means if you don't, it's called a, yeah, it's called a sin. When a king gives a command, Either you obey or you disobey. The command of God to us as his people, put your hope in the Lord in the midst of whatever you're facing. Once again, remember this is for me, you're just listening in. Let me sum it up. Number one, to cultivate contentment. And I've used that word cultivate because like some of you great gardeners, cultivating something takes time. To cultivate it means preparing the environment, preparing the soil, preparing it, growing it, watering, or monitoring it until you see the fruitfulness. To cultivate contentment starts with me taking responsibility for my inner world. I'm not a victim. This is self-leadership. Number two, to cultivate contentment starts with an identity change. I am fully and absolutely in the arms of my father, just like a baby in the arms of its mother. And number three, to cultivate contentment is a command from my king. It means it's not optional, and it means it is possible. So now let me leave you with three acts of repentance. Are you ready? Remember, these are for me, not for you, so... I'll start off with Brent. Brent, stop being so arrogant and think that everything is about you all the time. Do I hear an amen? (laughs) Amen. Thank you, my wife. Right there on the front. I knew I could count on you, baby. So remember the first thing that David said. Going back to Psalm Psalm 131, verse 1. First thing he says, my heart is not proud, Lord. With a proud heart, you're never going to be content. You see, proud is self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and control. Everything is about me. And basically, with a proud heart, you're saying, I will only be content when I'm in control. It's about... Friends, we cannot be entitled and content. Now, we live in an age that celebrates entitlement. You are entitled to everything. It's your right. It's your privilege. It's your everything. It's, it's your convenience. We live in a humanistic world designed to meet us and our needs. And everything about the world tries to tell you you're the center of the world. And then we wonder why people get depressed. We were never designed to be the center of the world. It's not about you and it's not about me. That's called pride. It's only when we take our eyes off ourselves and fix them on Jesus and then others that we find fulfillment. To find contentment starts with stopping thinking that everything's about us. We will never be content and entitled 
at the same time. We will never be content if we expect to be served all the time. We will never be content if we are demanding our rights all the time. We will never be content if we think that God exists for my personal comfort and convenience. We will never be content if we think that God should think like we do. We will never be content if we think that when things go wrong, that God is to blame. Amazing thing about, um, about Paul, the apostle, is as he grew and matured, it seems to me that his self-esteem got worse. Which is a crazy thing because nowadays if you go to school or, or we live in this world where self-esteem is critical, you're special, you're a unicorn, you're a butterfly, a snowflake, you're a, you're a winner. And, and we live in this world that tries to build up our beautiful self-esteem. Paul didn't get to that class. In fact, early on in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, he said, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I mean, that's pretty humble right there. But since there were only 12 apostles, I mean, I mean, they were famous and huge. To be the least of the apostles, I mean, I'm number 13. Out of all of the great men of God in the world, I'm number 13. That's pretty humble, but not that humble, if, if you get what I'm saying. But then he matured, and in Ephesians 3 verse 8, a little bit later on, he said, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me. Yo. So he went from number 13 in the ranking of all Christians, now I'm the less than the least of all God's people. So he's gone from there to Yo, he's now at the bottom of the pile of saints, but that's not all. Later he writes to Timothy, he's an old man now and he's in prison. And he says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, he has a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He went from like 13th in terms of all Christendom to zero to, and to negative five billion whatever, seven, I don't know how big the world was in those days. It's like, jeepers, Paul, what happened to your self-esteem? Well, nothing happened except his revelation of Jesus grew. You see, we have two self-images. We have in Christ self-image and outside of Christ self-image. In Christ, I am a child of God. In Christ, I am the apple of his eye. In Christ, I am beloved of God. In Christ, I am precious. But outside of Christ, I am the worst of sinners. And this is the amazing thing right here. It's not about us. We don't deserve to be blessed by God. We cannot earn his blessing and we don't deserve it. It's a gift of his incredible grace. Our identity is in Christ. In Christ, we as children, his bride, his beloved. But outside of Christ, we're the worst of sinners. Because those who have been forgiven much, love much. So choose an attitude of proud entitlement or godly contentment. It's one or the other. So active repentance for me and maybe some of you as well. If we're ever going to live contented lives, it's not about you. It's not about me. Actually, I don't deserve God's blessing. Number two, stop looking through the eyes of comparison. Stop looking through the eyes of comparison. He said it like this in verse number one. My eyes are not haughty. 
Haughty is not exactly a word that you've probably used recently. I don't even think there's an Afrikaans word for that. It's just like, it's just, I don't know, haughty. Haughty is kind of that condescending type look where you look at everyone else and you compare them and you always come out tops. Have you ever been with someone like that? No matter what you do, they've done it, done it bigger and better. It's like everything they have to compare and they always are the winner. That's haughty ours right there. But the thing is, comparison is always opens the door for discontentment. Either, it's gonna, either you're going to have haughty eyes and you compare everything and, and you've got to show yourself, prove yourself, put them down so that you look better. Or you feel insecure and so now you're discontent. Haughtiness, comparison is such, I think it was Andy Stanley who came up with his little line and he said, there is no win in comparison. There's no win. Because either you're going to think yourself superior or you're going to think yourself inferior. There's no win in comparison. Haughty eyes are eyes that look down on everything and have to be above everything. They actually deeply insecure, and so they have to make sure that they win in every comparison. And that's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. So when Satan could get them to like, why don't you eat of that? And once they ate, the Bible says, and their eyes were opened. Does that mean Adam and Eve were blind up to that point? No, but they were blind to comparison. All they lived was in the goodness of God. But now that they've tasted something outside of God's will, they could compare. Oof, do I want in God's will or out God's will? And right from that moment, they tasted, oh, the joy of being in God's will, but there's some boundaries or no boundaries. I can do what I want, but now I'm feeling guilty and shameful. And the rest of our lives, all of us have been living in that exact thing because we know We can compare good and evil, which leaves you discontent. My eyes were not haughty. Comparison leads to discontentment. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. So choose to always compare or to be grateful what God has given you. And lastly, he says in verse number one, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I pondered that. I mean, it's... Should we be, what's wrong with pondering the wonders of God, with the miracles of God? But that, I don't believe, is what he's saying here. That same word, things that are too wonderful for me, that word wonderful means fearful or exceedingly large or difficult. I think basically what he's saying, I'm not going to concern myself. I'm not going to fill my mind with things that are bigger than me that I've got no control over. You see, the biggest thing that's going to rob us of our contentment is thinking that if I worry hard enough about something, it's going to change it. Surely if I spend the whole night worrying about this, that power of my worry is going to adjust the universe. And Jesus, in his loving directness, said in Matthew 6 verse 27, Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And yet we devote so much of our time to concerning our minds with things in the future, things beyond our control, thinking that maybe my worry can change it. In verse 34 of Matthew 6, Jesus said this, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I learned a word once that uh, all people who struggle with depression have this one common feature of their lives. They ruminate. The word ruminate means to, to run in your mind over and over and over the same movie. The same worry or the same line, the same, there's that constant self-talk going on inside of you 
over and over. It's like the cow that chews the cud. They're chewing it over and over and over. What David was saying here is, I do not let myself, I do not ponder, I do not allow my mind to keep on dwelling on things that I've got no control over. How do you stop yourself thinking or worrying about something? You replace it. Replace it through worship, through meditation on scripture, through physical activity, through creativity, through socializing with others. But the point is this, David showed us to lead ourselves. We can't lead ourselves. First, we've got to start with our heart. Two, we've got to start with our eyes. And then three, we've got to start with our thinking, taking control of our thought life. Mature followers of Jesus should begin to enjoy the fruit of contentment. God's will for your life and my life is to be like Jesus who could sleep in a storm. Don't you love that? The disciples were frantic. They were worried the boat's going down and I think Jesus was cheating to be honest. I don't think he was fully asleep. I think he had one eye just slightly open and he was resting with his head on the pillow as he heard the disciples talking and going and worrying and stressing and he just lay there because he knew he was lying in the arms of his father like a weaned child with its mother. While all the other disciples panicked. Contentment is part of our inheritance. God's desire for you and me is to have a faith in Jesus. A hope in Jesus that sustains us. But we're never going to get there with proud hearts. Let's let's lay that down. Lord, it's not about me. It's about you. It's about ours that are not always comparing. I don't have to compare. I can be thankful to God for what I have. My life, my house, my job, my body, my wife, my family, my money. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I don't have to always compare to everyone else. And these thoughts in my head, Lord, this, I cannot do anything. I can meditate on scripture because I can obey that. But to worry about my job, my health, my future, I can't change it by worrying. Lord, I repent. Help me to change my thinking. David took responsibility for his inner world. You'll never be content if you're proud. Our identity is amazing in Christ and dismal outside of Christ. But we can never be proud because it's a gift. You'll never be content if you're always comparing. Comparison leads to discontentment and discontentment is the doorway of temptation. Be grateful for what God has given you. And you'll never be content if you're ruminating over future worries. Jesus commands us not to worry, but to trust. So contentment is to be cultivated. Let's cultivate contentment in Jesus' name. Amen? Why don't you stand with me, please? If you don't mind closing your eyes, just where you are this morning. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that in you, in Christ, we receive all the spiritual blessings. Jesus, you've done it all. Jesus, you paid the price on the cross. You set us free. Lord, this morning, we want to put our faith and our trust in you and you alone. Friends, let's do business with God just for a moment. Is your heart proud? If you are dead honest before the Lord right now, have you got a it's all about me attitude? And you're always whining and complaining if people don't do what you want, like you've got to be in control. It's, it's, if that's you, just... Bring that before the Lord right now. Forgive me, Lord. Confess pride, Lord. I just confess it before you. Jesus, I am a servant of you. You're not a servant of me. I'm a servant of you. 
What about eyes that are haughty? Are you always comparing your life to someone else? That's not fair. It's not fair. Or I'm always better. If that's you, if you this this comparison eyes, why don't you bring that before the Lord right now? Lord, I want to confess as sinful. This, this heart of comparison that's always comparing everything. Forgive me, Lord. I repent of that right now and I'm replacing it with thankfulness, Lord. And what about your thought life? Is your thought life under control or is your thoughts quickly run into a ruminating cycle of playing that same movie over and over again? Let's take responsibility for that. The Bible speaks about taking captive every thought. Our minds renewed by scripture. Lord, we want to take authority over our thoughts in Jesus' name. We repent, Lord, if we've allowed our minds to cultivate weeds instead of cultivating the fruit that your word speaks of. We bring it before you, Lord, in repentance right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of contentment, Lord. And may we reflect contentment to the world, closing the door on temptation and opening the door to your glory. Thank you, Jesus, for this precious gift. Holy Spirit, would you guide our steps as we walk in it? Friends, just before we say amen, just with your eyes closed for a moment, I want to say to some of you who here who maybe have never experienced the contentment that comes from having your sins forgiven, your past washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus, there is freedom and hope and contentment and healing and wholeness in Christ alone. But it starts with repentance. It starts with turning from sin to following after Jesus as your Lord. And if you've never done that before, it requires a decision of the heart. And maybe you're ready. Maybe you've got the faith to make that decision today. We would love to pray with you and encourage you as you start your journey of repentance. And for anyone else, we're going to be praying for some folk. The elders and leaders are going to be laying hands on people and praying for them. So if you do need prayer, you're welcome to join us. But Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your incredible love. We thank you that we can be content in Christ. And Father, even as we go, we thank you that your gracious hand rests upon us and goes with us in Jesus' name. And God's people say,